Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. We're your hosts. I'm Emily. And I'm Margo. And we are very excited today because we get to talk about all the fun teen soaps and all the dramas that were on TV during the early 2000s. And there were a plethora. I am, I fell down a very deep Degrassi K-hole. And so I'm just waiting for my life to be five times more dramatic like it was on that show. Because that show taught me that anything can and will happen to you. It was... If I recall, every episode was like someone got chlamydia or a school shooting happened or someone had an abortion or it was, I mean, and, and, and to be frank though, it seems like the, they set the plot, the, the pace for a lot of other shows that were on during that time. Yeah, I would think that they, I mean, they did and they didn't because they sort of prided themselves on being like an alternative to Hollywood, quote unquote, teen soaps, which kind of comes up with skins, which I'll also be talking about. I got both foreign ones for one reason or another, but (laughs) I'm strictly red blooded American over here. Yeah. Well, no, I did strong arm my way into covering Degrassi. So that's, that explains that one. But also I am the only one that saw skins. I wish I had seen it. <laughs> uh, but you caught some of it because I was rewatching it before we recorded. What, did you feel like you missed out on anything other than baby Daniel Kalia? Um, well, baby Dev Patel, baby Nicholas Holt, um, and baby Nicholas Holt, who's giving off extreme. I'm auditioning to be in Twilight vibes. He, I mean, he's 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 British. His pasty skin, is <laughs> right? But I think there's just something about that like haircut no, as you're well. Right. You're... And I mean, like I screamed at one point. He wears so many fucking striped shirts oh, on this goddamn show. Yeah, I mean, I thought it looked good. It's definitely I. I have too many shows on my to do or to watch list right now that skins would probably be very far down. But I do at one point have if I have a chance, the chance to watch it, I would. I mean. I don't know. I watched the first two series in real-ish time because there's always like a lag before it hits whatever American broadcast system it's going to go on. But um, I think those are probably the best because from everything that I read afterwards, which I think I'm not really going to cover too much because then it starts to get into like 20 because it went on until 25, I don't even know, 15 or so. And that's not really what I'm going to be talking about. But anyway, Skins. Skins. (laughs) Well, one of the first shows that, that people really think of when they think of these, you know, teen drama soaps that were really popular around this time is, of course, The O.C., um, because it does inspire a bunch of reality show spinoffs and very similar shows that are um, created in its image that follow that same kind of 40, 45-minute uh, drama uh, episode um, and have, you know, characters that look like they're popular kids but really have a lot more depth to them. And are also actively 10 to 12 years older than their character's age. Ah, yes. Or at least Ben McKenzie. Yes. When he showed up, I was like, I wish somebody that looked like they were 23 would show up <laughs> at my high school. school. Right? I'm pretty sure the only one at the time who was actually of high school age is Misha Barton. I'm pretty, she was 16 or 17 when she was cast. Right. Um, the rest, like Rachel Bilson, uh, was, I think, about 20, 21, and same with Adam Brody, and then Ben McKenzie was a little bit older. 
but that show, The OC, is interesting because their creator and producer, executive producer, Josh Schwartz, ended up actually being the youngest ever creator of a TV show. He was 26 years old when that happened. Doesn't he go on to do Gossip Girl? Yep, he does a lot. So the show was created and executive produced by Josh Schwartz, and this is actually the first pilot that he wrote that actually came to fruition and was aired on TV. So he's kind of a boy genius. When he was at USC, he comes from... <laughs> I saw that eye roll. Yeah. Um, when he goes to he goes to USC, and uh, he's from Providence, and he uh, is just fascinated by all these people who come from Newport, who are very blonde, very like preppy, or play water polo. That becomes a lot of the emphasis, or like the basis for what ends up being a part of the OC. First off, when he's in college, Sony TriStar buys his first script for a feature film in 1997 when he's a junior. And it's for a deal guaranteeing at least $550,000, and it was worth up to $1 million. It never was made, and then he later wrote a TV pilot that was bought called Brookfield um, that was about a New England prep school. But it was produced as a pilot with Amy Smart and Eric Balfour, who we see in a lot of these. Yeah. Okay, Amy's so I have a OC Amy Smart connection. Can I do a small detour sure. to this? That, this very L.A. story, which I apologize if my stories are too L.A. It's just where I'm from. <laughs> After high school, I was going to community college in Santa Monica, and I worked at a flower shop in Brentwood that was shared a parking lot with the Whole Foods off San Vicente, if you know where that is. And it was kind of like a bougie-ish flower shop. Like, we had, like, a lot of deals with agencies and with big corporations, and we do, like, large arrangements for them. But we also mostly got, like, a ton of phone calls all the time. And that was part of my job as a receptionist, amateur florist or whatever, was to take messages and write, like, place the order, talk to the guys about putting them together, and then also writing the cards, which is, like, a huge thing because I had nice-ish handwriting. I was always designated to do this. So one day... It happens to be the day after the season two finale of the OC, the or whatever fateful three, three where Marissa dies. I T-voted or whatever because I was either out or doing something else and I was going to miss it. So I'd stayed relatively spoiler-free because this is pre-Twitter shit and also the ubiquity of, like, I mean, I'm not going to take out my T9 texting cell phone and, like, try and look something up. Right. So I'm on the phone with this guy and he's, like, giving me this really elaborate order for this, like, really beautiful arrangement. And we get to the card part. And he basically says to Misha Barton, sorry you died last night on the OC, looking forward to other projects we're going to work on, love, whatever her fucking agent's name is. And I had no idea that she had died. And there was a silence on the phone to the point where the agent assistant, I assume, was like, do you watch the OC? I was like, uh-huh. He's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Aww. And at that same flower shop, we sold Amy Smart's soy candle line. And she came in a whole bunch because she was, like, really into styling her little booth set up within the flower shop. And she was very nice. Huh. She always, like, tipped whenever someone would, like, help her out to the car. Anyway. She seems like one of those nice actresses. Oh, yeah. And yeah. definitely had to be told. They were like, oh, that's Amy Smart. I was like, oh, don't. I don't. It, this was pre. I think this was before I had seen Just Friends. So I wasn't yeah. super familiar with her oeuvre. Like, maybe she was, maybe I saw her in Craig, and I was like, oh, that's Chev Chelios' girlfriend, but I don't know. Anyway, Amy Smart, she's everywhere. Yeah, so uh, he, that one never sees a lot of day, that pilot that she was in. 
but then he ends up getting together with McG and Stephanie Savage. Oh, right, because I forgot McG yes. actually directing some of the show was a he selling directs, point for yeah, me. Yes. Okay. So McG, of course, as we talked about in our previous episode on, who will probably yeah. continue to pop up because he had such a long career and was so involved in so many music videos. Totally. He was big in the, all the music videos in 1999. Later directs the Charlie's Angels movies with Drew right. Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and Lucy Liu. Which is fittingly getting rebooted already. Of course, which is crazy. So Mick G is, uh, at this point, really hot director in Hollywood. He wants to... Can you imagine that time? That's like when he had that kid with Bridget Moynihan, right? Did or no. no? No, sorry. That's, that's Tom Brady. Tom Brady, and then she marries Mick G. Oh, oh so she God. married him after the OC. Yeah. It really is for love. It really is. <laughs> So basically, McGee and Stephanie Savage had worked on the show that McGee had created called Fastlane, which got canceled after one season. It was with Peter Facinelli. Was after, it on Fox? Yeah, yeah. And t- t- Tiffany Amber Thiessen and Bill Bellamy. Hmm. I never saw that, but it does ring a very faint bell. Right, right. And so anyway, that show gets canceled, but McGee and Stephanie Savage continue to work together, and they meet with um, Josh Schwartz. He wants to, McGee wants to create a TV show based on his hometown of Newport Beach in the o- in Orange County or the OC. Savage kind of pitched it. So yeah, you can just call it the OC, Emily. No one's going to fault you. <laughs> okay, good. I just want to make sure as I am not from there. <laughs> Stephanie Savage kind of pitched it as more of a 21 Jump Street style show. And Josh Schwartz was like, that's not in my roundhouse. I don't really know what you're talking about. Oh, because that would have made total sense with... Ben McKenzie being Ryan. Exactly, exactly. So I think that was really the premise they were originally going for. But Josh Schwartz was like, you know what? That's not going to work for me, but here's what I have. I have experienced people at Newport Beach because I went to USC. I know the water polo vibe. Like, Brag. I and he was like, you know, e- this East Coast Jewish kid and like sure. was just was like the first time in like a plethora of blonde surfer water polo tan people. And um, <laughs> basically the show gets pitched to uh, Cat to Fox in August of 2002. Josh Schwartz was really inspired by Cameron Crowe, which makes sense, I think, with the vibe in some ways, especially with the choice in music and all that. Definitely um, the music choices yeah. and having, what is it, diegetic music all right. the time, kind of like Cameron Crowe movies. Right, right, right. And, and he's also inspired by my so-called life, Freaks and Geeks, Undeclared, which, I mean, at the time, were, what's crazy about those three were they were all one-season shows. And, and a, yeah, and I was like, wasn't Undeclared canceled? Like, no, Freaks and Geeks had... No, they had one season. Really? Yep, only one season. I guess it's just lo- like a longer arc than what I'm used to now. Right, and the longevity of it, I think, also helps. Sure. Um, but yeah, but all three of those shows only had one season each, so it's interesting that he was so inspired by them. So the show, the themes in the show drew from his own back, personal background, of course, coming going to USC. And then the Cohen family dynamic was really based on his own family, especially the dynamic between him, Seth, and Sandy Cohen very much mirrored the relationship between him and his own father. So they go on to write this show. Josh Schwartz becomes the youngest creator of a TV show. The show airs on August 5th, 2003 for the first time and has the craziest ratings. It attracted 7.46 for like a scripted show at the time, 7.46 million viewers in the U.S. And this is right after the boom of some of the big reality shows like we've talked about on this. So like The Bachelor. Wasn't it like in the dead of summer? Wasn't it yes, a summer it was, show it, too? It started Which in, is like uh, an yeah. even bigger feat because right. numbers during the summer are notoriously right. low they all the time. They started a little bit earlier than the rest of the fall schedule. Sure. Like and they were August, like an August premiere or something maybe. And the first season will end up averaging 9.7 million viewers an episode. 
uh, which is crazy. Again, like these for scripted shows at the time, these were pretty big numbers if you weren't coming out of like NBC's lineup. Um, and especially like a Thursday. I feel like I recall them being on a Friday night in the summer. So they were not Friday night. They were, I believe it was a Tuesday night originally, and then they got moved to Thursday, which they ultimately believe is the reason why the ratings tanked pretty much really? after the first Oh, two too seasons. much competition on right. a Thursday? Because while Friends had ended in 2000, and it ended in 2004, there was still Willem Grace and a couple of other sure. must-see TV shows on NBC that were competing with that Thursday night time slot. But the nice thing for the OC for a while was that they were the lead in after Idol, I believe. And so that's oh. what got them really great ratings on some of their episodes. Interesting. Um, so anyway, the plot, I'm not going to go into deep dive of what happens every single season, but I think I've written a pretty good summary. So Ryan Atwood's played by Benjamin McKenzie. He's a troubled teenager from Chino. He gets thrown out of his house by his Chino, mom. Chino, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, Chino. He gets thrown out of his house by his mom for getting in trouble yet again, and in court... That's very th- Tokyo Drift. Sorry, right. I just had to interject, because we, we have to build oh, our own universe, oh Emily. Second season connection. We have All to build our way. own old millennials universe. That's how you this stay is, alive. Uh, Ask Marvel. Amazing. I love it. I cannot, <laughs> Ask wait, Fast for and our, I cannot wait for our Comic-Con panel next year. <laughs> our nine-person Comic-Con panel. The Emily Margot universe. The EMU. <laughs> the email. <laughs> buy a fucking shirt to that i know oh anyway my God. sorry so i interrupted good. with my so good and what if like our episodes were aired in different times but like someone took the like the love and time to like arrange them in the order you should listen to them kind of like adventures movies. oh i see or even like the fast and the furious you yeah. know you've got to listen to episode one and then you got to go 14. straight into the first mini episode where we recap new beginnings and then you got to go into spidey's wedding i like the pattern maybe we should start our own propaganda i love it so much can we create our own wiki page and be like this is how you should listen to the show so good so anyway, Chino, Ryan Atwood, he's uh, in court. He gets, Chino! Sorry, that took a second. He gets represented by public defender Sandy Cohen, who's played by Peter Gallagher and his epic eyebrows. Sandy decides to take in Ryan and have him live with his family in Newport. His wife, Kirsten, who's played by Kelly Rowan, is not thrilled by this decision. Oh my god, isn't she? The, she's the one that goes through like a bunch of custody crap. In the, no, sorry. No, 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 no. That's no. Gossip Girl, Mom. Yeah, my yeah, bad, my yeah. bad. No, no, no. So so she has her own problems. Later, she deals with alcoholism and obviously has, I believe, sort of an affair with Jimmy Cooper, Marissa's dad, but we'll yes. get into that. Oh, I meant like her real life life, but I, no, I confused no, no, no. the that actress. Was, that was Kelly Rowland. Not Kelly Rowland. They're, they're a couple of Kellys. Kelly Rowland is of, of Destiny's Child. Kelly Rowan is <laughs> the mom in the OC. And then there is Kelly Rutherford. Rutherford, who is, thank who you. Who plays... Um, um, I'm forgetting her name on the show. Isn't it Blair's mom? It's Blair's mom. Or is it... No. Serena's mom? I always forget. She's someone's mom. It doesn't matter. It's not the same person. It doesn't matter. But Kristen... Kirsten has never been more suited to Kelly Rowan's... Rowan. Disposition. So she is not thrilled by this decision. But meanwhile, they have a son named Seth who is nerdy, neurotic, and into comic books and obscure emo bands, but is hilarious and ends up becoming the real, like, heartthrob of the show. Like, everyone, yep. and he's played by Adam Brody, everyone ends up loving him over uh, Benjamin McKenzie, which is not what they had planned, I think, on the show. I was show. just saying, like, did they see that coming? Not at all. In fact, I think, and, and he ends up inspiring what is very much like a Seth Cohen archetype. Like, there is... He is a manic pixie dream girl from... For white girls. And I was so fucking in for it. Obsessed with him. He was a natural predecessor to Gideon Yago, I feel like. I feel like 
This is just the natural I, progression I of things. I cannot stress enough. Like, just, mm, anyway. I feel like Seth Cohen, Adam Brody's character, Craig Epstein, or Jake Holy Epstein, Craig's character from Degrassi. They're all the same oh triangle God. of, like, white, sad guy I that you fall for. was obsessed with Craig Manning so hard. Oh, my God. Okay, we'll talk about that. Well, I mean, we'll, get, we'll yeah, cross we'll that bridge and we'll it. get to him but soon. She, oh but, yeah, God. I feel like they're all of a piece, though. They really are. I feel are. like if you had a crush on one, you had a crush on all three. They're, yeah. Yeah, it's like a nerdy rock boy Jewish guy, like floppy hair, floppy hair, like yeah, I was like kind of shy, gettable ish. Like know. he's gonna make you a good mixtape on that second date. Oh, and it's gonna, you're gonna cherish that mixtape, and you're gonna read way too much into it as well. What does he mean by track five? <laughs> um, anyway, going back to the plot, Ryan ends up falling in love with a girl next door, Marissa Cooper, who is played by a. <laughs> Young Nisha Barton. By of, that, I'm just of correct of, age. Of correct, of correct high age. age. Her, and then we'll 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 go through. You know, we we later go and see Marissa Cooper's trials and tribulations that will lead to her sadly, spoiler alert, ultimate death in the end of season three. Her best friend and Seth's crush since the third grade is Summer Roberts, who is played by Rachel Bilson. Rachel Bilson was originally supposed to, or sorry, Summer was only supposed to be a minor character in the beginning. But she became a season series regular after becoming really popular with the fans. Like, she ended up being such a good character. And it ended up working really well because I end up thinking, yeah, she's one of the best characters. Summer and Seth ended up being fan favorites that of they course. were forced to develop more character depth with. And thank God. Like, I'm glad that they listened to the audience that watched this because I think they ended up really putting together what is, you know, here and there some issues, but ultimately a really great relationship that had great chemistry, great writing, like all that. I mean, it felt really authentic and real. I mean, it in did. addition to them dating, it was sort of similar to The Notebook yeah. between Bridget McAdams and Ryan Gosling. Gosling. They had like a really sim similar chemistry. Exactly. So the supporting characters of the parents... <laughs> Include Julie and Jimmy Cooper, who are played by Melinda Clark and Tate Donovan. They're Marissa's parents. Jimmy and Kirsten Cohen dated when they were younger, and we later learned that Kirsten was pregnant at one point with his kid and got an abortion. They kind of reconcile over over time. They uh, they kind of have a thing, but Jimmy kind of becomes a deadbeat dad because we find out he's in big trouble with the law for embezzlement. And later, Sandy tries to help him, but ultimately, he cannot help himself, and so he just kind of goes away. <laughs> oh, right, yes. I was like, doesn't he kill himself? I'm like, oh, wait, no. no. no, 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 no that no. was Real Housewives of yeah. Beverly Hills. <laughs> There's also Caleb Nickel, Kirsten's real estate developer dad, who ends up marrying Julie Cooper after Jimmy and Julie divorce due to Jimmy's embezzlement troubles. He's always a jerk to Sandy Cohen because he makes a lot less money as a civil servant. Um, he doesn't think he's good enough for her, for his daughter. And also, I think there's a tad bit of anti-Semitism there. Like, let's be honest. There is, we also will later meet Caitlin Cooper, who is initially played by a young Shailene Woodley in season one. Oh, I forgot about that. Right. But she's there for about a coffee cup and then, or a cup of coffee. And then she's later played by Willa Holland when she comes back from oh, boarding right. school in later seasons. Finally, we have two other characters. There's Taylor Townsend, who's played by Autumn Reeser. She's a villainous goody-two-shoes that we're introduced to in later seasons. But later, she becomes a main character, and then the friend love interest She's sort Ryan. of like the Paris. She's the Paris. <sighs> She's the Tory, if you're into um, uh, uh, Saved by the Bell. She's just kind of a character that shows up towards the end, who we end up liking later. But really, it's, she's there after Marissa dies. And, uh, and she's kind of a dick, but it's all you got. It's all you got. Um, and then the other character that I forgot to mention in my notes is Marissa's boyfriend from the first season. His name is Luke, and he's played by Chris Carmack, He later, who later goes on Nashville. 
Oh, I never watched Nashville. Um, but the, the but most... it's also supposed to be a good nighttime soap. Well, Luke ends up being a, an asshole jock at the beginning. We end up liking him later, and then sadly he gets really bullied because people find out he has his dad's gay, and uh, he has an affair with Julie Cooper. I forgot all about my dad, my gay dad subplot for that character. And then the final thing that's no, of note of him is that in the first season episode, the pilot episode, he coins the term, Welcome to the OC, bitch. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I had to bring him up. He doesn't really have much of a thing after the second season. Or any character arc whatsoever. Right. Really. But nice guy. He later on. Anyway, so I think the most important things to go into for this uh, show is going to be the music. This is probably the most important character in the show, I would argue, because this ends up being... It, it really breaks ground on a lot of different things, and I'll go into it. I was listening, re-listening, actually, to this great podcast called uh, Showstopper on Spotify, and they talk about music on TV shows and how they like there are important moments in music that have happened on TV shows that elevate a plot or like make a difference or break ground or what have you. They interviewed. They have an episode where they interviewed Alexandra Patsavas, who was the music supervisor for the OC. She will later be the music supervisor for the Twilight movies, which I hate those movies but they have good music Grey's Anatomy and Gossip Girl and which is crazy because Grey's Anatomy is another one of those shows that like was very known for it's like bringing musicians out of nowhere and becoming famous because they had a music they had a song uh, that was featured in that final five minute voiceover montage at the end of a Grey's Anatomy episode. Well, the OC is the reason why I discovered the band Spoon. Right. And so you have the, these bands. So uh, what, of course, happens is that in the beginning of the show, they play all these great music. There's an episode where Rooney shows up. Uh, oh, right! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then don't they have... Wait, Phantom Planet did their theme song, they right? They did. California by Phantom Planet is the theme song. But this is, like, where a lot of indie music becomes, quote-unquote, mainstream, if you will. Um, it's tied in a lot with Seth Cohen's character, who has kind of, quote-unquote, a more obscure taste in music than some of the other people in his high school. Um, the the rise of that overall popularity, uh, and then there's, of course, uh, the bait shop in the second season and that is the music venue where the gang kind of hangs out they go and see um live music there the bartender of course was played by a young olivia wilde who was also marissa's oh, yeah. girlfriend at one point on the show so uh, in this interview which is really interesting was that alexander patsavas would see what bands were coming into town in the la orange county area and then would ask them to come and perform on the show and make an appearance and it worked out because they would film like really early in the morning or in the day. They weren't filming late at night, those scenes. Sure. So they had a concert that night. They would pick up the band at like 6 a.m. day of, have them film their scene where they do a performance. Um, and then they would be featured on the show and it would help boost their uh, sales. I'm sure. And of course, they were concurrently releasing all these great soundtrack albums. I believe there were four. There were three. <gasps> Three yeah. main ones. They were always called the OC Mix, mix 1, tapes, Mix yeah. 2, Mix 3. And there was a holiday one, which was really great, too. And the famous bands that would go on to appear on the show include, in addition to Rooney, The Walkman, The Killers, Modest Mouse, The Thrills, Rachel Yamagata, Death Cab for Cutie, and The Subways. Um, and there were even some bands that turned it down because they were like, this is too mainstream. But it's interesting because I think this is around the time where this concept of quote-unquote selling out was a much bigger deal in the 90s and prior to that. And I feel like with the 2000s, it was still kind of there, but it was like 
shit, we can get our song featured and, like, make a little bit of money because otherwise we wouldn't be able to. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think they're, they kind of blurred that line and it wasn't as big of a deal anymore uh, to quote-unquote sell out. But they get they feature a lot of music that wouldn't have otherwise been featured on TV. And, yeah, like you said, it's because of them that you know the spoons are. Like, I – or, sorry, that you know the spoons. <laughs> that I know who spoon is. Spoon Sing is. Singular well, I, spoon. I was reading one of the bands here that said – I was reading The Thrills – and I was thinking Spoon, and I went into the Spoons, sorry. Spoon is, um, and I feel like, I'll be honest, that's how I know Death Cab for Cutie was, and um, The Walkman, for sure. The Walkman, that was definitely the first time I heard their music, too. Um, they These soundtracks were great. I remember burning them off of a college roommate, because I, like, <laughs> yeah, they were great. I really, really enjoyed them. What a... 2006 statement to make. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, I'll, I'll be honest, like, it was my first foray into indie music, like, between that and illegally downloading stuff on LimeWire or Kazaa, um, or Kazaa, it was, you know, for a suburban kid like me, this was the way I was going to learn about indie dance. But I think that's true for most kids that were watching it anyway, unless sure. you were really plugged into an indie scene, or yeah. you lived in New York or something. I don't really know how else you would discover these bands, or lived in London or something. I'm not really sure Yeah. what other means you would have to listen to The Walkman. I mean, The Killers, I feel like they went on, and I could be totally wrong about the timeline, but I feel like they went on The O.C. right before they blew up. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, the other main highlights for the music that I'll say are Imogene Heap's Hide and Seek, of course, the mm, what you say. And also, it's very iconic sketch by Andy Samberg. Right, and I bring that, yeah. So, so it comes just as Marisha shoots Trey, Ryan's brother, which later leads to a very famous SNL digital short that was written and performed by The Lonely Island. Hello Sunshine by Super Furry Animals is when Seth and Summer lose their virginities to one another. And then they, the third time that they have sex, after Summer has just confessed that she too was a virgin when they had sex, Seth plays on the record player Ryan Adams' cover of Wonderwall. Oh no! <laughs> and then later when Summer is dating someone else and she's just like, I can't do this anymore... And she finds Seth has fallen down from the roof in a Spider-Man costume, and he's stuck oh, upside totally down. Oh, I totally forgot about that. The homage to the movie Spider-Man, that yes. upside-down kiss. It's Matt Pompier's cover of Champagne Supernova. So they had two Oasis songs for crucial Seth summer moments. Oh, my goodness. Um, but uh, essentially, I think all I need to say really is that Seth and Summer are the best relationship on the show. Ryan and Marissa had their... An incredibly um, unhealthy relationship. Like, so problematic. But, I mean, it was Seth and Summer were... But I always rationalize it as, like, he's so much older than her, and he's definitely pretending to be a high school student. <laughs> so it's not her fault. I did love... I, I don't know if you're going to talk about it, but Marissa's freak out on her mom by uh, her freaks out, freak out on her mom by the pool in like the beginning of the second season, where her mom's like, "What's wrong with you?" and she like completely loses her shit and like breaks a bunch of stuff. Is really a scene that I think about all the time, just because that's how I feel on the inside a lot. <laughs> and I had my own Marissa Cooper esque freak out in high school where I broke a keyboard over my knee because. It's just really stressful to be a teen sometimes. Oh and I think that that's something that the show did well. No, they did. Like You're the right. stress of like having maybe perhaps an unorthodox family dynamic and sometimes the stress manifests itself in weird ways and you also don't know how to use your words. There's <laughs> someone who put it best in one of the interviews was while people turned in, tuned in to see a show where they could imagine like fantasize about having this lifestyle and living in this wealthy area ultimately they came back because the family they saw a family dynamic that they wanted for their own family and that was the cohen family mm -hmm. that even in the midst um all of the rich uh people there and all the wealth 
that really the family unit that ends up really being the most realistic and good, like, kind of honest, good relationships, healthy relationships between parents and children are between the Cohen parents and Seth and later Ryan when they adopt him. So the other things that I really want to bring up really finally are obviously Seth and Summer having both toy horses. Like Seth had um, Captain Oats and then Summer oh, yeah. had Princess Sparkles, which was like a My Little Pony. And then just kind of the aftermath, uh, it ends up getting canceled. Um, after season four, which was a 16-episode season because the ratings had declined big time, they killed off Marissa after on the season finale of season three while an acapella version of Hallelujah played. Oh, Ryan God, it was carrying so her dead body. It was um, very Bane much, Batman. Well, it was a full circle moment because in the first episode in the pilot, she's drunk and he carries, carries her, her home, her yeah. body home, yeah. Anyway, and then well, the, she wasn't dead. She that wasn't time. dead. Her her alive but passed out body. And then the cool, I mean, Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage end up doing very well. They continue to co-create and produce Gossip Girl, Chuck. Then they go on and co-produce and create uh, Dynasty and Runaways. They've also served as the executive producers of The Carrie Diaries and Heart of Dixie because Josh Schwartz is actually good friends with Rachel Bilson. In fact, she was the maid of honor at his wedding, um, and uh, she's the godmother of his kids. Huh. Yeah. Well, why doesn't he give her another fucking job? I don't know, but that's that's my 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 OC spiel. It was a long one, but a good mm, one. What you say? <laughs> <laughs> well, my Degrassi spiel is about to be longer because this fucking show went on for ages. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have come to Degrassi the next generation because that is that's its whole title if it wasn't for my uncle Kurt who. When I was visiting him over the summer, around middle schoolish times, he was like, oh, I saw an episode of the show that I think you might like. And because he had satellite cable, he had, I believe, like noggin. a CTV oh. or like a, maybe a noggin that later turned into the end. Mm-hmm. But he had access to the whole first season of Degrassi. And we binge watched the entire thing together and it immediately got hooked. There is something about this show. It's still just as watchable now. I felt like I breezed through most of the end of the first season into the second season in a couple of hours without even realizing it because it is a half-hour show, which back then it felt like they packed an hour's worth of drama into a half-hour, so I thought it was going to be a lot longer when I embarked on my mini binge sesh, which it's all up on YouTube if you feel like revisiting it. Oh, my God. But Degrassi, The Next Generation, is the fourth iteration of the Degrassi franchise. Yes, it's considered a franchise. And in its Wikipedia page, it refers to Degrassi as, like, the Degrassi universe and some other terminology that I find very funny, but it's true. Yeah, so it started out as a show about a group of teenagers who lived around Degrassi Street in Toronto, Canada. But eventually it came to be about regular teens navigating junior and high school. Grand total, there are 621 episodes across the four series, The Kids of Degrassi Street, which is actually four short movies that kind of started it all. That The four short movies that are considered The Kids of Degrassi Street led into Degrassi Junior High, Degrassi High School, 
Degrassi Next Generation and now currently Degrassi Next Class, which is on Netflix. Yeah. It was originally created by Linda Schuler and Kit Hood, but Degrassi Next Generation was created by Schuler and Yan Moore, who was an original Degrassi writer, and Schuler's husband, Stephen Schnaun, who came up with the Next Generation bit because he's a huge Star Trek fan, which I thought was funny. That's really funny. It pre- premiered on CTV in October of 2001 and later in the States in 2002 on the N or Noggin and ran until 2015 when it was canceled due to falling ratings after 14 seasons and 387 half-hour episodes. Oh to put that into context, the only shows that have similar runs are Cheers, Law & Order, and fucking Grey's Anatomy, which is currently on. And is like, it. Grey's Anatomy has 340-some-odd episodes, and Degrassi, over the course of 14 seasons, has 387, and I believe Grey's is maybe on its, like, seventh, eighth season or something. Right. So. Oh, I think they might be in, like, 12th, 12th? Oh, Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, because they're around, like, 2005. Yeah, I know. When I looked it up, I was so surprised to see yeah, that. Cause yeah, I just want to yeah. know how many episodes. Degrassi Next Generation centers on Emma Nelson, who's the daughter of Spike and Shane. Can I make a quick Spike yes, story? Yes, please. Spike, it was my cousin's friend's roommate, which is a very Toronto thing. So the actress who played Spike is was my cousin's friend's roommate. That's a very Canadian thing, though. Like, in Toronto, a lot of those actors are pretty normal people and live normal lives, so you will very frequently be like, my cousin was like, oh, yeah, one time I was at a party with the actor who played Rory's dad on Gilmore Girls. And oh. I know him well. I'm like, that's amazing. But <laughs> what? That's, but that's like broken. And I've told you the story of Broken Social Scene, how my cousin, oh, right, yeah. cousin and, and her boyfriend live next door to the lead singer of Broken Social Scene. So, anyway, I digress. Canadian no, I, connections. I think Canadian and also weird New York connections because I had a friend be like, oh, yeah, I love staying with my one friend who's neighbors with one of the guys from Ratatat, except when he's home and not on tour, and all you can hear are drum beats till 5 o'clock in the morning. Jesus. I was like, huh, New York. Yep. <laughs> Next Generation centers on Emma Nelson. She's the daughter of Spike and Shane, who Emma doesn't meet until a fateful episode, super disastrous, oh, yeah. which that's listed. So I've sort of broken this up into a couple of segments. I'm going to talk about it more generally. And then I have a list of what I like to call very special episodes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if some of them are technically very special episodes in the traditional sense. Some of them are just very special to me personally. I like that. Anyway, Emma meets her dad in the third season. We will talk about that in a second. But Spike and Shane were from Degrassi Junior High and also Degrassi High School. But at the end of Degrassi Junior High, Spike finds out that she's pregnant. And so by the time they, the creators, Linda Schuler and Yan Moore, were sort of approached with this idea of revitalizing it, they're like, well... We could do a reunion episode, which they do end up doing, but they thought if we wanted to bring it into the present time, which was 2001, Spike's daughter would be entering middle school right now, and there are lots of topics there that we could cover, and lots of things have changed since we've done Degrassi Junior High, so that would be a good place to start. So we have the pilot episode called Mother Child Reunion, which is about Emma meeting up with her chat room boyfriend only to discover he's some much older creep who has a bunch of video cameras set up in a hotel room. And it was backdoored through a special reunion episode where you get to meet the previous cast. And many of them will end up having some sort of role in Next Generation. Obviously, Spike and Snake, Archie Simpson, they get married and have a baby together. Mm -hmm. And... Snake goes on to become, well, he goes on to go from a just a regular science teacher to a cancer survivor to school principal in the end over the course of 10 plus years. And Craig's stepdad is Joey Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. And there's like some sort of convoluted way how he ended up becoming a stepson. But they try and make it work. For the most part, Degrassi follows a very straightforward A plot, B plot, C plot, which is very impressive because this show covers a, ri- a wide range of topics. And each plot line can be 
more lighthearted versus something more dark. So we could have a, a B or C plot that's about, or we could have an A plot, excuse me, that's about sexual harassment or abortions or self-harm or right. even death and then have that juxtaposed with something that's perhaps a little bit more lighthearted, like getting a boner in sweatpants or <laughs> having a secret LARPing passion or like finding a dildo or wearing a thong to school. So you can have the two kind of live together. And maybe they didn't always handle the traumatic plot points in the most elegant of ways, but I felt like they always did a very good job portraying the aftermath, whether it's like a emotional or psychological effect and how it also affects a group of friends as well. And the term trope has a lot of negative connotations, but I think Degrassi ends up using the conventions of tropes, especially teen soapy tropes, to their advantage. Yep. So they turn every episode into entertainment regardless of what the topic is. And it gave them it gave them license to just as easily turn out melodramatic love triangles as it did their very special episode of the week episodes without alienating any of their audience or preaching to or at them. Similar to the Hills theme song, Degrassi's theme song is iconic, Whatever It Takes, by Lisa Del Bello. Mm. I don't know her. Whatever It Takes, I know I can make it through. If I hold out, I know I can make it through. And similarly, the intro always was one sort of like Scorsese-esque shot yep. that was them going throughout the Degrassi school, throwing a football, or Ellie's recording, Ellie's recording something, like Marco's turning around with his jacket on, we see wheelchair Jimmy. I mean, it just sort of like follows all of the character and checks, checks in with everybody and mostly ends with one of the students, but sometimes it'll end with just Snake being like, you kids. Yeah. The show did a lot, right? In the sense that it felt very realistic, partly because it was a Canadian show with Canadian actors who are not known to an American teen audience. It also never pandered. It handled capital P problems, no matter the size of it. Like, it was super important. Yes, everybody was of age. This is something that that Degrassi and Skins both share, was that their actors were relatively unknown, especially to an American audience, and they were within plus or minus two years of their character's age. Everybody looked awkward and weird and that's what made it so relatable was that you could look at the characters and see yourself totally although you know some and you might face some but not all of these problems i think at a certain point it became ridiculous because they experienced like literally every shitty thing you could possibly experience as a teen right but we'll talk about that in the very special episode segment but they handled every problem no matter the size like it was the most important or most embarrassing thing like it totally felt like to you as a middle school or high school student and they also handled the more serious broad topics in a at least with the weight that kids usually give it which is that they don't know what the fuck to do Mm -hmm. they are equally freaked out they push you away they don't say the right thing and so that's that added to making them also feel like a group of friends in the same way, and I know I bring this up all the time, but like a like a real like um like a real housewives group, like you get this sense that like they hang out outside of the show, yeah, and that they are really invested in each other's problems, no matter how big or small that they are. Yeah, Degrassi also launched the career of many beyond Drake. There was Sinead Grimes who played Darcy. There's Nina Dobrev who played Mia. Cassie mm-hmm. Steele who played Manny. Lauren Collins played Paige, and Stacey Farber who played Ellie. Obviously, Jake Epstein who was the Craig Manning and heartthrob. And was our original troubled but still hot crush. Yeah. He's doing very well for himself on Broadway. Oh. Yeah. That's surprising and not surprising, but yeah. good, good for you, Jake slash Craig. Yep. Uh, they established this in the very first episode with Emma being targeted by a complete creep in a very ca- to catch a predator, almost before to catch a predator was even a thing. Yeah. They established that 
anything could and would happen to all of those characters just like in real life. From their troubled teen storylines to their unsophisticated wardrobe, as opposed to more glossy Hollywood teen soaps like Pretty Little Liars or even The O.C. or Dawson's Creek, they dressed awkwardly, they were gangly and weird, and they had really plain-spoken, very expository dialogue because that's how teens talk to each other. And I think that that's why it resonated the most. It still holds up nowadays. The issues are just as relevant and pertinent as they ever were 18 years ago. And even though the show has a very special episode energy, it kind of somehow, against all odds, doesn't have any of those same, like, preachy trappings. Right. So as evidenced by their very special episodes, Shout Part 1 and 2 is an episode that still stays with me today. It's when Paige gets date raped. Um, I hate to start here, but it was also the very first episode that came to mind when we were starting to put this episode together. Yeah. Mostly not because of, like, the date rape and all of that mostly because she blames herself and the way that she does it it feels very real and it's something that I've seen it's something that I've experienced and so it felt really like it could happen to you or your friend and it initially starts out that she's like flirting with a soccer player and she thinks that she wants it so she believes that she deserved to have gotten raped and her friend Hazel is the one that helps her realize that that is what happened and that it's not okay and just like a real rape victim doesn't immediately go to the police doesn't she's not a perfect victim she doesn't tell anybody really and it takes her a really long time to work up the courage and when she finally does just like real life it goes to trial and because dean the man who raped her is a white soccer superstar he eventually walks right she does get her own sort of closure when she reunites her band with ashley who is now goth because goth because goth ashley recites a poem in class which is another excellent teen trope where you Give all of your feelings, you spew them out in poem form in the middle of class because yeah. it's an assignment, or maybe it's not an assignment. But they take her lyrics and they turn it into um, It Happens to Other People. You say how sad, you say poor thing. And at this battle of the bands where Paige gets the band back together with goth Ashley. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. And Hazel, who blows out her voice in the very last second, and plus-size best friend Terry, because that's how they treat her. Because Terry goes on to have a plus-size campaign, and she gets bullied for it, and then she doesn't want to do it anymore, but... Her girlfriends are still hyping her up like, you're so hot. Like, everybody wish I could model and all this other shit. And then Terry has such low self-esteem that she will eventually enter in a relationship with a man who will later go on to be the school shooter. Rick. But we will get to Rick and all of his Sorry. nonsense. No, you're right. But she, <laughs> Paige, to go back to Paige, she 
has her band reunite. They do a battle of the bands, and she gets to sing slash tell off Dean the Rapist to go fuck off. And so there is some closure if there isn't, like, justice closure. She bashes his car later, too. Oh, right, yes, when she sees him again at a party. He's like, oh, I would have called you. You were so hot. And she was like, you're disgusting, and you raped me. He's like, that's not my version of events. So she goes and bashes in her car. Yeah. For you, Paige. There is Mirror in the Bathroom, which is mostly about Toby's eating disorder, which I appreciated them shining a light on. Dudes can also have eating disorders. Yeah. It's not a girly thing that just only happens to women. They they frame it as Toby sick of being a nerd. He's trying to cut weight so that he won't get his ass kicked at his regular weight by people on the wrestling team because he desperately wants to join the wrestling team so he can get a girlfriend. And so it's a very interesting story. It starts out as laxatives, and then it progresses into just, like, kind of anorexia, bulimia. There's Don't Believe the Hype, which is also incredibly relevant. Hazel is Muslim, and she is so embarrassed and doesn't want to talk about it or deal with it to the point where when International Day comes around, she pretends to be Jamaican. And the one other Muslim girl in their school is bullied and is somebody spray paints terrorist on her locker and, like, ruins her International Day poster and hazel still struggles with trying to come out to defend her even though she believes she thinks that she knows deep down that hazel is also muslim but she refuses to help her out because she that is how much she's trying to protect her own identity and that's really interesting because that now is incredibly prevalent and is still relevant to today jaggy little pill ashley takes ecstasy cheats on jimmy with sean emma slash ellie's love interest and comes back the next year as a goth which i personally loved this arc because it's so fucking stupid yeah i mean her and jimmy don't work out anyway and their wheelchair trying to have sex episode like is still burned into my brain just because it was so uncomfortable to try and watch them interact after all of after not only what all they've gone through but also just them trying to be sexy together when you've seen them since they were babies and you're like i am officially uncomfortable now yeah i also I gotta say, I wasn't a fan of Ashley. She was one of my least favorite characters. I was also show. not a fan. I there were times where like I liked her and I yes. identified with her. Yes. But her, she just needed to be taken down a couple of pegs in order to be likable. Once she started to feel herself, then she was kind of an insufferable asshole who was right. really sanctimonious and was always trying to like tell people how to live their lives, but wouldn't ever accept any sort of other feedback from anybody. Right. Like she almost in, in Paige's episode where like she's been the aftermath of dealing with her rape. Like, Ashley is just like... Oh, yeah, she's like, I read about rape on the internet. You're like, Ashley, shut the fuck up. Right. So stupid. Ashley basically woman-splains rape. It it really is painful. She's like, they have some really interesting stories. I I couldn't believe some of her dialogue. Like, this is why people fucking hate you. It doesn't matter if you're fucking goth or not. Yeah. And then there's Father Figure, part one and two, where Emma finds her estranged father. He took acid, jumped off a bridge, slash fell off a bridge, and so now he has, like, crazy brain damage. Excuse me. And he gets very violent. Uh, for spells, but knitting is what soothes him. So when she finally tracks him down with Craig on one of their, like, Craig and Emma have an adventure episodes, she meets him and, like, it totally freaks him out. And he says that, you know, you can't be my daughter because my daughter's still, you know, a baby or whatever. And she tells him that she hopes that they can still maintain a relationship. So she gives him their, her address where her mom still lives and her mom is currently pregnant. And with so she's baby. With, yes. And so when the dude shows up, her dad, Shane, shows up, and she's pregnant. Or, I'm sorry, is his name Shane? Shane's the dad. And yes. Then, and then Snake is, but Snake is Archie, now her. Archie, sorry. Yeah, Archie, Archie, sorry, sorry. Snake, yeah, is her. So Shane shows up. 
and Spike is pregnant, and he gets totally spun out and freaks out about the whole thing, so much so that he causes so much stress that Spike goes into early labor, and it's this whole big dramatic mess, and Emma comes home right in the nick of time because he's, like, violently freaking out, and she gets in the knit and distracts him. I remember that being, like, a whole big stressful episode. There is, you got the look where Manny just has the simple mission of wanting to be hot and wears a thong to school. Oh, yeah. There is Take Me On, which is their Breakfast Club spoof episode where Elliot infiltrates detention for a story, which I think is hilarious. It sort of reminded me of the time where I worked at SF Magazine. They're like, oh, you you know people that went to Cal. And, like, do you know anybody that went to Cloyne? Because we're doing, like, an expose about their drug problem there. <laughs> I was like, um, yeah, let me get back to you on that one. Uh. There is never going to give you up, which is where we find out that Terry's boyfriend, Rick, is abusive, where she gets confronted by Hazel and Paige that he's, like, really controlling and all this other shit, and it leads into Don't Dream It's Over, where Rick wins Terry back over just like you would in an abusive relationship, and they go on a picnic, and she wants to leave, and there's a a scuffle, and you kind of throw throw falls. It's, like, it's left ambiguous on purpose. Yeah. And she falls into a coma, yeah. and her dad automatically blames Rick in front of Paige and Ellie and maybe Hazel, which I thought was, he's like, it's that fucking son, or it's Rick, or whatever the fuck he says. But eventually he forgives Rick, and he says that it's an accident. But I feel like that's the beginning of the end of when Rick starts getting bullied, and honestly, I felt like rightfully so. That's also Terry's last episode, if I recall Yeah, correctly. she just goes off quietly into the night. We don't know what happens to Terry. I think she comes out of the coma and they move to, like, Saskatoon or whatever. Saskatoon? There we go. (laughs) That one. And then there's one of my favorite episodes is Holiday Part 1 and 2, and it's just a love triangle between Manny, Craig, and Ashley, where everybody is an asshole, and Manny ends up pregnant having to have an abortion later in the season. There are lots of abortions and date rape storylines in Degrassi. Is this where Kevin Smith shows up? I touch on that. I don't know where he shows up. I didn't really super look into it because I, I don't know. I just didn't love Kevin Smith being on Degrassi. Yeah. I also gave up on Degrassi after JT gets stabbed to death. That that honestly was the last straw. It took me a long time to come around to the school shooter episode, which yeah. is called Time Stands Still, parts one and two. And Rick, I felt like all of the signs were there that he was gonna that he was already abusive, that he was unstable, that he was going to be the type of person that could find a gun and bring it into school. Yeah. But... I forgot that Spinner is ostensibly responsible for getting Drake shot. Yes. Because he's the one that thinks it's so funny. Well, he tars and feathers Rick, which is what sends him over the edge. Then Rick overhears Spinner and the other dude who's kind of like Jay. a... Bor- yeah, Jay, who's like borderline criminal. Yeah. Who Jay was the only one where I'm like, how old are you? And shouldn't you not be here? No, my friend definitely in college had a crush on Jay, and that's because Jay was old enough to have a crush on Yeah, Jay was 22, and he, like, stole cars and laptops and shit, and that was not chill. But they try and, like, they thought it would be really funny if they just sort of exposed Jimmy as, like, the perpetrator behind the tar and feather. But then, of course, this sets Rick off. He comes back to school, still covered in tar and feathers, and he brings his dad's gun, and he shows up, and he pulls the gun on Jimmy, and Jimmy tries to deny it. He doesn't believe him. Jimmy runs away. He gets shot in the back. And then Sean, who is another, like, kid from the wrong side of the tracks type of character, Mm -hmm. because there were a couple, like, pretty in pink situations happening at Degrassi, where it's like, just let me love you, but I don't deserve to love you, but let me love you. And it mostly happened between Sean and Emma. Sean basically steps in front of the gun when Rick is like, and Emma, you wouldn't kiss me or you don't like me or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I think Sean's reaction to watching a kid. I mean, the whole 
so in the end, Rick shoots himself, and it seems like because there was some sort of altercation with the gun, but it's not entirely clear, but if, whatever. I, I have some issues with the way that he gets shot, because it would appear that he would have survived. Right. Instead of just immediately died, but I thought the most interesting stuff was what happened to Toby, who was friends, or perceived to be friends with Rick, and people always asking him, and him getting hounded by Courtney Cox from Scream, being like, oh, what did you think about your friend? And he's like, he wasn't my friend, don't call him that! And he yeah. didn't know... And then the same reporter tells him that his friend died, and it, I just felt like they handled it. Maybe they didn't handle the shooting necessarily the best, but I felt like they handled the aftermath and, like, the PTSD and how it affects right. a school very well. Mm-hmm. The impact of Degrassi is not to be overstated. I feel like they sort of created a different way to do very special episodes about preaching to kids, but there are some tropey, funny things to make fun of, and The Kroll Show has a really funny r- runner sketch called <laughs> Wheels Ontario, which also has Lauren Collins in it, who plays Paige. Highly recommend just watch it. They just have, like, a lot of funny Canadian Canadian and Degrassi-isms in yeah. it, and there are a bunch of characters that do look too old to be in high school. It's great. Kevin Smith has a weird multi-arc appearance on Degrassi. Alanis Morissette also makes a cameo. Drake's music video for I'm Upset is basically a fucking Degrassi reunion, and Degrassi Next Class carries on the legacy currently on Netflix. And this is not an ad, although we'd be happy to take your sponsor money, Netflix. So that's all I have. That is incredibly long. But Degrassi has over 380 episodes. So I felt like that was as short as I could possibly make it. Yeah, I mean, I carried on with the OC for quite a bit. Woo! Luckily, there was no music to talk about on Degrassi because it was largely, like, instrumental, like, feel this emotion right now. Those Canadian budgets do not support <laughs> the rights to all those 80s hits that they named the episodes Yeah, after. whatever film fund the movie Gooby about a talking bear used is what they definitely used on Degrassi. I love Degrassi as well, so when Margot stated earlier that it was a bit of a fight, there was, but I honestly, I enjoyed the OC as well, so I was glad I got to talk about that. Emily, having a sister and knows how to relent, me not being a child <laughs> with siblings, does not know how to let a bone go. <laughs> and speaking of sibling rivalry. <laughs> One Tree Hill definitely has a lot of it. Oh my god. Okay, so um, nice tie over from the OC. Ryan Atwood was played by Benjamin McKenzie, but the role of Ryan was originally offered to Chad Michael Murray, and he was coming off the hills of his Gilmore Girls episode. Hot boy appearance. Where he was, he played Tristan, the douchey prep school guy at Chilton. He turned it down to play Lucas Scott on One Tree Hill. Okay, so One Tree Hill was created by by Mark Schwann, who is a very problematic dude we will go into later. His prior experience before One Tree Hill was writing and directing the movie, or he wrote the movie Whatever It Takes with Shane West and Marla Sokoloff. Whoa. Yeah, and like a young Aaron Paul pre-Breaking Bad. Well, yeah, wasn't it like 2002? James Franco was in it. Like, it's a lot of... Like baby James Franco. Yeah, baby James Franco. And that's, I think he and and Marla Sokoloff went out for a couple years after that. Okay. (laughs) The show aired from 2003 to 2012, so it started on the WB, and then about three years in is when... UPN and the WB consolidated and became the CW. It was filmed in Wilmington, North Carolina, the same place where Dawson's Creek and the Andrew Griffith show were filmed. <laughs> and with Dawson's Creek, you can kind of see it. Like, they're very similar kind of small town vibes. Yes. I would agree. It was originally planned to be a film called Ravens, but later Mark Schwann thought that it would be better as a uh, television show versus being a movie. It was named Ravens because the team that they play for is the Tree Hill Ravens. That's the high school basketball team. He based this on his own um, upbringing. He thought of himself to be a lot like the 
character of Malcolm McFadden, who's one of Chad Michael Murray or Lucas Scott's friends from the neighborhood they grew up in, who is less popular, but becomes popular by association over time. And um, <laughs> basically the plot... Of course, Mark Schwann would think that of himself. The plot, I'm... You guys, this is the fucking most dramatic, like... One Tree Hill. This is truly, and I mean, I think that One Tree Hill and Skins shares this. They're both very fucking soapy. It gets to a point. I got to the point. There are like twins and comas yeah. and dogs stealing hearts yep. and shut up Nick Lachey. Yep. I mean, I there was a certain point where I was like, I cannot continue to tune in with One Tree Hill because the plots are so... Z- you think that Wild Things had double crosses? No. One Tree Hill was like, fuck no. your double crosses. Got I've got some for you. I'm sitting next to Margo on the couch and I'm like, listen, I'm just going to bring up some of the top crazy ass plot points that I found. I don't. I can't even go into more of the plot than the initial season one stuff. So the main story arc really focuses on the two half brothers, Lucas and Nathan Scott, who are played by Chad, Chad Michael Murray and James Lafferty. They let, they go from being enemies to friends, and the reason why they don't like each other very much is because they share a father, Dan, a Dan Scott, who we Ugh, find who's out so gross. He's like scum. So we find, He's the Schwan of the crew. Yeah. So we find out the background is that Dan gets pa- Karen, Chad Michael, or Lucas's mother, Karen, pregnant in high school, hits it and quits it, then gets Deb pregnant, who is Nathan's mom, and uh, marries her. He tries to get custody of Lucas from Karen, but she denies him that custody because she does not want her son to end up like his father, who's a douchebag. Dan forever resents this and resents that his brother Keith who's been friends with Karen, uh, Lucas's mom forever, and has been in love with her forever, is more of a father figure to Lucas. So between that and being denied custody, oh like, God. he's just pissed off and ends up, like, being such a jerk. Anyway, so we find out, so basically Chad Michael Murray's character, Lucas, makes the basketball team. He comes from the wrong side of the tracks, and he's kind of the first time where he's a junior in high school, and he's kind of entering the popular people world. So he and his brother are kind of the stars on the team. Nathan, his half-brother, is threatened by his, uh, his brother's basketball abilities, along with the fact that Lucas is interested in Peyton, his girlfriend, who's played by Hillary Burton, former MTV DJ. Along with Lucas, and, and then so later, however, Lucas uh, ends up dating Brooke, Peyton's best friend, who's played by the awesome Sophia Bush. Those three will end up being a part of one of the focal love triangles on the show, which is Lucas, Brooke, and Peyton. Uh, Lucas will date both of them at various times. Later, there's also a love quadrangle between <laughs> the parents. So, oh yeah, <laughs> I've forgotten all about this. So we have Lucas's mom, Karen, and then we have her, his biological dad, Dan. So Dan and his wife Deb, who's Nathan's mom, split up. Deb hooks up with Keith, Dan's brother, but gross. Keith also has dates. Karen, Lucas's mom. How many people live in North Carolina? Jeez, I, I don't know. You would clearly, think it's seven. Clearly not enough in this case. They are not living in one of the major cities. Shout out to my friends from North Carolina. I know that you're not all that. We know <laughs> you don't date the same seven people repeatedly. <laughs> so there's a love quadrangle there, which ultimately ends up in Dan because he's so pissed about uh, like Deb, his ex-wife, hooking up with his brother. And the fact that he never got custody of his son, and Keith was always more of a father figure, he co- he kills his brother. Oh, yeah. In a, in a school shooting episode, because this show has a school shooting episode as well that we'll get into. Mm, what you say. That's right. <laughs> Meanwhile, though, Nathan and Lucas, the brothers, end up becoming better friends because Nathan ends up dating Lucas's best friend, Haley, 
who is played by Bethany Joy Lenz. Yes. And they are kind of the couple that really stays together. They're the constant couple yes. throughout the entire series, apart from some few trials and tribulations. I'm not going to go much more into that plot because, like... As it's long. It's so long. Because they so, also stay on the show the longest. Like, some right. other people, like, cycle out eventually. Right, right. And so the things to point out here are going to be the show's four, first four seasons are their last two years in high school. So basically one and two focus on the junior year, three and four focus on the senior year. Then in season five, they jump to after college, so four years later, which makes sense because the actors were all in their 20s, so they actually ended up looking the part uh in, in season five. Sure. Um, and then after season six, they jump another 14 months so as to explain why Chad Michael Murray and Hillary Burton departed the show. Okay. So to dive into those departures very quickly, in February, the CW had announced a series renewal. Uh, this is of in 2009, I believe, so this is in season six. They announced a series renewal without specifying which cast members had renewed their contracts. There was a weird video that surfaced of Chad Michael Murray, who was unaware that he was being filmed, saying that the show was not bringing him back because they wanted to save money and encouraging fans to rally behind him. This intensified speculation that he was not being brought back because he was a lot of money to be on the show. And, and tr actual trouble and, and trouble probably too. hard to insure. Right, because that is after he had divorced Sophia Bush. Well, lots of money probably because of the insurance issues. Later, also, um, a video of... Burton, Hillary Burton, saying that she would stay if she had creative control of the show had also surfaced, fueling speculation that the CW did not want to keep Hillary Burton on the show without Chad Michael Murray, as they played love interest during that uh, that particular arc. And so they basically, the explanation for them leaving was that they were traveling, which fans felt was not dramatic enough for a show, which I agree with. Listen, if you're going to go with a show where every season some shit seriously goes down with a plot twist... Why not send them off in the blaze of dramatic glory? I Why couldn't their car have exploded off of the side of the Grand Canyon or something? One season, the school shooting season, also ended, after all that was said and done, ended in a car accident. Like, that, to me, screams like... There was so much insane yeah. drama that right. occurred, even just in those four seasons, that I don't remember most of it. Nope. And they could have really sent them off in a more flamboyant fashion of which the show loves to indulge in. So I'm going to bring up a handful of those plot highlights. I really don't want to deep dive into Run Tree Hill as much as we did with the other ones because honestly, I don't think it aged as well. It's one of those shows that was like good for its time, but over time just jumped the It's shark. a fucking soap opera. It's a soap opera. So, okay, a couple of the plot points to bring up. Keith, Dan's brother, hooks up with Deb, what we talked about in the love quadrangle when they're separated. In revenge, Dan hired Jules, a woman, to make Keith fall in love with her and stand him up at the altar. Instead, she actually falls in love with Keith, but when Karen finds out about Dan's plan to sabotage their relationship because he hired someone, she tells him, she tells this woman to leave Tree Hill or she will tell Keith the truth. And at the end of season three in the school shooting episode, Dan shoots Keith dead as he believed Keith had attempted to murder him in the dealership fire because Dan is a car dealership oh owner. Oh my as God, all small I forgot town, about Rich that. villains do. Looking at you, buddy. From Friday Night Lights. Yeah, everybody owns a car dealership. In the same vein as Degrassi, there is a school shooting episode. Basically, it's more of a hostage situation where Jimmy, in this case, the shooter's name is Jimmy. Oh, um, like, does everybody named Jimmy get shot in these <laughs> shows? 
One of the guys from the same neighborhood as Lucas and Mouth, uh, and Mouth resents the fact that they're friends with the more popular kids and that he no longer has friends and has been getting bullied, like Rick from Degrassi. So he brings a, school to, a gun to school and seeks revenge on his former tormentors. Lucas and Nathan risk their lives to save everyone else's, which results in the following. Peyton almost dies from a gunshot wound. Dan kills his brother, Keith, who is basically Lucas's surrogate dad. And Jimmy kills himself. Dan uses Jimmy's uh, suicide to make it look like Jimmy killed Keith so he doesn't have to take right. the rap for the I remember murder. that. Peyton, oh, the other one that I shared with you, Peyton, at one point in this show, starts hanging out with a, a guy who claims he's her half-brother because after her oh, strange God, mother, one. her strange mother dies and le leaves her a record collection. In the record, there is a note that says something about her having a half-brother because, of course, that's a plot point. Then, and of course, you find it mysteriously. And of course, she has a podcast in way ahead of her time, like 10 years ago. She uses her podcast to be like, if you are Derek, find me. This guy shows up at her door because that's safe. When in fact, uh, who claims to be her brother, when in fact, his, his real name is Ian and Ian is a stalker. He's jealous of Peyton's relationship with Lucas because at the time they're not dating, but they're friends. Ian knows of her feelings for Lucas. He tries to break them apart. By creating a fake instant messenger account, because this is AIM days. Come through. Catfish her ass. Payne finds out that it that it's Ian pretending to be Lucas, and she gets scared. He ends up the real the real real way she finds her her real half brother is because they arrest the they cops go looking for Derek and arrest the real Derek, and she sees the guy they arrest, and they're like, "That's not him," and they're like. That's your real half-brother. And then Ian is out on the loose, attacks her in the middle of the night, and Chad Michael Murray, or uh, Lucas, saves her. Brooke, at one point, adopts a 15-year-old when she's 22, which is very short-lived. The other one, the other two plot points I will bring up are Haley and Nan Nathan's nanny, Nanny Carrie, after right. losing her son, took the natural course of action and became a nanny, of course. Duh. Hand that rocks the cradle, baby. Uh, <laughs> frames Nathan for infidelity and tries to tear the family apart. Hand she, that rocks the cradle. She then reveals her crazy ass behavior. She kidnaps Jamie the baby after she uh -huh. was fired yep. for all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Then Dan, the dad of Nathan's dad, stops psycho, her. Psycho Dan. The psycho Dan stops her. She returns later and kidnaps Dan in another bid to have Jamie as her own baby. Good. Kidnap Dan. And at plan, the plan ends up being unsuccessful as Haley and Deb, so Haley being his wife. Oh, my God. And Ma, the baby's mom. And Deb, Dan's ex-wife, managed to stop her before Dan kills her. Whew. Final thing. Dan has a very famous heart condition on this show, which yep. later becomes the ultimate. Like, you didn't think the show could jump the shark. And then... It like it continue, it jumps every water based animal you could think of. It jumps the narwhal. <laughs> it had he has been waiting for a heart transplant, and a nurse drops the cooler containing said heart, and then a dog fucking eats it. I shit you not, listeners. You can look this up. And it used to be that this was on The Soup. Do you remember The Soup? Yeah, of course. That's yeah. where Shut Up Nick Lachey comes from. I, God bless you, Joel McHale. I wish there, they'd fucking bring The Soup back. I know Netflix so canceled it. good. Anyway, there was, the, they would bring back this scene over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, I don't feel like going into anymore. I know there's another kidnapping plot at the end. 
just so you know, this show averaged 3.5 million viewers. The second season was the highest range, uh, which averaged 4.3 million viewers. And the aftermath really is that this guy goes on, um, what's his name, Mark Schwann, ends up, he was a dick and he has several- A creepy dick. Creepy dick who ends up having several sexual harassment allegations. And starting in 2017, when Audrey Wachope, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced her name, who later went on to write for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend with her writing partner, wrote on Twitter that she and said writing partner Rachel Spector oh, were sexually right. harassed by Schwann while working on the show. Later, Hillary Burton and Danielle Harris, who is now Danielle, Danielle Ackles because she's married to Jensen Ackles from Supernatural, mm-hmm. CW marriage, also alleged that he had harassed them. And then Sophia Bush also said that he had harassed her as well. So she says, and this quote was amazing, she says on um, this Andy Cohen's show on SiriusXM, First time One Tree Hill, Mark Schwann inappropriately touched her. Yeah, quote, my mom took it. My mom is a crazy Italian lady from New Jersey. The first time Mark Schwann grabbed my ass, I hit him in front of six other producers and I hit him fucking hard. Good for you, Sophia Bush. In the end, 25 female cast and crew members of the show released their own open letters stating that they too had been subjected to sexual harassment by Schwann throughout the show. He was then fired from the Royals, rightfully so. Good. The final thing to note is that they also treated Sophia Bush like shit after she and Chad Michael Murray, who had gotten married, subsequently got divorced a couple months later. Okay, they got divorced because Chad Michael Murray fucked Paris Hilton while they were making House of Wax, which is not a show you should lose your marriage over. Or, no. I'm sorry, a movie. No. Although it is a very hilarious remake. It, the I, part where his face is melting wax and he holds up a mattress to, like, shield himself from a flame. He's like, mm! Because his his face is made of wax. He can't scream. That was so funny. Oh, my God. I haven't seen that in years. I'll have to watch. Uh, I mean, Paris Hilton's death is pretty satisfying. She gets her Achilles tendon snipped, and then she gets, like, a spear through the head. So, if anything, you know, Sophia Bush, you didn't have that happen to you on a movie. So, that's good. Essentially. She's the winner. She's the winner. She, she, she He's such a total up. fuck boy. He's a fuck boy and hasn't had that He wishes he had Chicago fire so money. She has done very well for herself. And she's admitted that the producers were really inappropriate to both of them when about the breakup while on set. And that they ran TV ads about it. Yikes. And she even says, and this is rightfully so, they that like the producers for them were like parents. And when you run a show, you're supposed to protect, she says, quote, you're supposed to protect your flock. And it was the opposite of that. And I imagine that it was hard for him as well. It was a very ugly situation on their part. I think they kind of live for the drama. Anyway, good riddance, One Tree Hill. We love you, Sophia Bush. And, you know, I'm happy for Hillary Burton as well because she's married to, what's his face? Uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Yeah. And they seem very happy as well. So I think at the end of the day, the women on the show... I mean, Hillary Burton also got sexually harassed by Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck at MTV I mean, Sophia Bush also dealt with more sexual harassment on, I don't know if she's on Chicago, or was on Chicago Fire, or on just regular Chicago, or whichever NBC show that was. Yeah. But she was also harassed on that show as well. I ultimately, I I think, for me, it's- Leave these women alone. Leave these women alone, but good on them for being amazing, to speak out against what's happened, and to be a voice for those other victims out there. So, What did you say about Sophia Bush? She's a huge Planned Parenthood supporter? Yeah, she's a big big person for uh, reproductive rights. I actually went to a fundraiser that she co-hosted at the 930 Club in D.C. many years ago when Obama was inaugurated. Oh, 2012, so his second term. But that is a big music club in D.C., and she was one of the co-hosts doing a benefit for Planned Parenthood, where I believe Q-Tip did a DJ set. And Delta Ray, the country alternative band played. Oh, my God. 
Yeah. I haven't heard that name in so long. They were great. Anyway, it was a great show. I was glad to see her. She rocks. I love you, Sophia Bush. I can't say enough good things. Uh, yeah. If anything, Winter Hill has been good for is giving us really amazing female actors or just lady actors because also Joy. Oh, Bethany Joy Lenz. There yeah. we go. She's also great. She does great work. She's very funny. I think she's got a good social media presence. And then we got Hillary Burton and Sophia Bush. So, yes, the men are trash on that show, but the women are, as always, pulling the fucking dead weight. Yep. I am going to talk about our other foreigner soap opera that in some ways is like One Tree Hill because of it leans into these like more soapy, dramatic tropes. But I think they also had more of a sense of humor about themselves, unlike Degrassi. Yeah. I came to Skins when it first came to America on BBC America. I was picking up my younger cousin and hanging out with her after school, and she was 14 at the time, and I was 19 at the time. And Skins, because of, well, I'll get into it, like, about their writer's room and the creators and all that stuff, but it spoke to both of us on equal levels because she was just starting high school. I had just finished high school, but it also focuses on what they like to refer to as, like, term term six grade sixth form which is essentially 10th 11th grade and then 11th 12th going into college age so I I felt like it had lots of stuff for the two of us and that's something that they did really well in summary I I actually really love this plot summary from IMDB that describes skins thusly the story of a group of British teens who are trying to grow up and find love and happiness despite questionable parenting and teachers who want to be friends and lovers rather than authority figures (laughs) Which is basically what the show is about, but really, it's about, it's a British teen comedy drama. I think it is more of like a dramedy because there are some funny parts, especially after something really dramatic and heavy happens, they tend to go into like some more lighthearted jokes. Yeah. And it follows a group of teenagers who live in Bristol, Southwest England, and it follows them through two years of sixth form, which I just explained what that is. And the storylines explore issues like dysfunctional families, mental illness, like depression, eating disorders, post-traumatic stress, bipolar disorder, sexuality, gender, substance abuse, autism spectrum, death, and bullying. Each episode generally focuses on one particular character, and you meet all the characters during the pilot episode through the lens of Tony, who is sort of like your Patrick Bateman antagonist that you get to follow. And then eventually... The mantle gets passed on to his sister, Effie, who you also meet in the pilot. That's, like, a pretty early instance of an anti-hero. I mean, like, you had a lot of them, but I feel like that hadn't extended itself to, like, adolescence. Yes, and he was also sort of, like, a baby-faced anti-hero. So I feel like there was also a difficulty not rooting for him because he came across as so young. So you always sort of assume that he will grow out of it. But I think he's sort of like a Ryan Felipe in Cruel Intentions, especially the way that his arc ends in the first season it sort of felt a lot like cruel intentions like him finally coming around only to have something tragic happen to him but i feel like skins is also like canada's slutty older cousin to degrassi because they have a lot of things in common degrassi and skins both offered an alternative to glossy hollywood teen soaps like dawson's creek pretty little liars the oc and offered a portrait of regular ass teens that you could identify and aspire to be more like Skins also launched the careers of Nicholas Holt, who played Tony, Dave Patel, who played Anwa, Daniel Kulia, who played Posh Kenneth, and Jack O'Connell, who later plays Cooks in Series 3, I believe. 
Like Degrassi, they cast unknown-ish actors who were close to their character's age, and Skins was super obsessed with being authentic to the teen young adult experience. No one in the writer's room was over the age of 25. Wow, I didn't know that. Nobody. The median age was 21, was 21, I was told. And they would bring in teen consultants all the time to look at storylines and ensure the accuracy that it would make sense and would resonate with the audience because that's how important it was to them and that makes sense as to why it spoke so well to me and my cousin. Parents and basically any sort of authority figure were fucking idiots in this show. They were always consumed with their own lives, giving the teens that you followed essentially free range to get up to whatever fucking shenanigans they wanted to. And although the show wanted to portray some consequences, they rarely did face any sort of consequences. Like the time that they drove a friend's parents' car that they stole into a river dam situation, and we never saw any cops called on them. But they would see consequences in the sense that, say, you owed a drug dealer money, and so he kidnapped your friend, and then they broke her clarinet because you couldn't pay up. And a lot worse would have happened to you if people hadn't intervened. Mostly what they would get up to, though, is doing drugs, general partying, and a lot of banging. The show's name comes from the slang term skins referring to cigarette rolling paper and was created by the father-son duo of Brian Ensley, who's the dad, and Jamie Britton, who's the son. It ran for seven quote-unquote series because this is a British show after all. And it premiered in January of 2007 and ended in August of 2013. And it was on EA in the UK and then premiered in the States on BBC America. When season two premiered, though, it was available ahead of time in four parts on MySpace before its official premiere. Because that is the most 2008 sentence I could possibly concoct. Oh, yeah. Do you remember when MTV did an American version or tried? Yeah, it's in there. It's a couple lines down, but yes. Skins was shot like an anthology anthology series in the sense that the cast changes out every two years because they would finish their sixth form at that point. Mm. So the same cast for series one and two, and then when series three would focus, it would shift to a different supporting character that you had prior seen as like a supporting cast member and now comes to the forefront as either the protagonist or the antagonist. But Effie, who takes up the mental for Tony, who is her brother, played by Nicholas Holt, she is also an antagonist because she turns out to be a sociopathic bitch just like her sociopathic asshole brother. It doesn't quite hold up like Degrassi does because they don't choose to focus on making anything feel like a very special episode. It probably wanted to be a bit more like a documentary in sort of like The Office, but a little bit more serious. It feels like kids at times. Like a It li- does, because they go out of their way for them to do crazy fucked up shit. Right. But they also, they refer to drugs, they have weird slang terms for drugs that I don't believe are British slang, because I never heard that when I looked for drugs when I was in London. And <laughs> it just sort of felt like, you know, it's like the squibbles, man. Like, they were trying to have, like, their own lingo. And so something like that doesn't really quite hold up in 2019, because you're like, are you talking about pills, or are you talking about weed, or are we talking about heroin? Like, what drug are you fucking talking about when you say the squiggles? Like, I don't fucking know what you're talking about. But also, the phones, my God. And I mean, Degrassi suffers from this, too, but seeing these little, like, shitty flip phones, like, I am at my brim right now between this and Tokyo Drift. Like, I cannot handle any more crappy Motorola T9 T-Mobile-sponsored flip phones. Anyway, Skins, I feel like it has a perfect spiritual sequel in Euphoria in the sense that they don't the social issues that Skins wants to tackle in 2007, 2008, or whatever don't really quite hold up unless they're more broad, like self-harm or shitty parents or eating disorders. Like, when they get like kind of in the minutia of what it's like to be specifically a teenager in 2007 in the UK, it, I wouldn't say it feels alienating. I just feel like I think times have changed, and I don't think that it 
the same messages apply. But Euphoria, I feel like, is a good spiritual sequel because it's mm-hmm. it's dark, it's funny, you like the characters, they're not all super likable, but they also deal with what I think characters on Skins would deal with, which is, like, being online and, like, meeting weirdos from there because there's not really, like, a ton of online interaction in Skins. The remake <laughs> happened for MTV in 2011. It was canceled after one season, and it was just a bad ripoff. It was just a shot-for-shot remake yeah. with some of the characters swapped out. So instead of Maxie, who was... A gay guy who was also aspired to be a dancer, he was swapped out with a lesbian cheerleader. There were just, like, some minor tweaks like that, and it just didn't really quite land. And I also think it just showed up a little bit too late. By 2011, some of the topics or, like, the taboo aspect of it had kind of fizzled out already. I also feel like MTV was just never going to be the network that could pull it off. You know what I mean? Like, MTV, I think, did... What network do you think could have pulled it off then? Um, at that point, I mean, I guess... No, because at that time there really wasn't like I think Freeform has um, evolved over time to have better representation shows that are a little bit more. Sure, I mean Pretty Little Liars was. I mean, not to keep bringing it up, but it is like a contemporary, and I feel like if it can if it can do that show on Freeform slash ABC Family, you could probably have had a Skins. Yeah, I just feel like in 2011 with MTV, I don't think they that was that might have been their only scripted show at the time. Probably that sounds right. Because. I mean, because they had a big scripted push after they had screen premiere and it did marginally well. Right, right, and I think like in the um, at that time it was all it was all reality shows. I'm thinking like in the '90s, I think MTV did scripted fairly well. Like, I mean, and it was mostly in the animation department, especially thinking of Daria. Right. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if 2011 like MTV would have been the network was the right fit. Of. Right. Yeah, and I don't. I didn't look into too much who had created it or anything like that. But maybe if it was a different creative team on a different network we would be in a parallel universe instead of the one that we're in now. Yeah. So series one ends, like I said, in a cruel intention-ish sort of way when the manipulative ringleader of the group, Tony, confesses his love and swears that he'll change to his ex-girlfriend, Michelle, only to get hit by a bus immediately while doing so. <laughs> so that, to me, felt pretty like cue up verb pipe because... Yeah. And then his... <laughs> his recovery and all of that is covered in series two which is also the last time i had watched the show because then i went to college and didn't have cable and stopped keeping up with the show that'll do it but he does ecstasy at some point in series two and he sort of like opens his mind and then says all the things that he wants to say but in reality it's sort of like um uh saint almost fire like he is trapped in a world of his own making yeah it was critically acclaimed for most of its run. It won a BAFTA, a GLAAD Award, and the Rose Duh Award. For a time in 2007, if you were invited to a quote-unquote skins party, the implication was that you were going to get fucked up and do a bunch of drugs and drink too much. And again, I mean, have you seen Euphoria? It's like American Skins, even though it's adapted from an Israeli show. <laughs> but that's sort of my, my whole tidbit on skins. I think it's mostly notable just for the careers that it launched because yeah. of it. And... I think it's still a fun, soapy rewatch, but it's not sort of required viewing in the way that I think Degrassi can be. Like, if there's, like, a difficult topic that you wanted to bring up to a teen, I would much rather bring up an episode of Degrassi than an episode of Skins, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So it's been a while, and I didn't get to revisit as much of Skins as I wanted to, but that's that's pretty much all that I have for my foreign teen soaps. Yeah, I mean, I think we we did a good job covering you know the the that time at this point i know there were plenty of others there was of course gossip girl which they're bringing back on hbo max really yes 
I don't want it. It's still good the way that it, it is because it's so insane. It's so insane. I would also say that, well, I guess you, which stars XOXO Gossip Boy Penn Badgley. Yeah. I think that's also like an excellent soap with like a murder twist. So it's sort of a little bit like um, Passions in a way. Yeah. And a little bit like One Tree Hill-ish because there's like the stalker aspect. There are a ton of really good teen soaps that are out that have now, come out since absolutely and it's it's because of these shows that they have the look and the feel that they have like you, we just talked about euphoria but i you know there's several others just because it just mind. ended so it's like on top of mind for right, me right now of course of course but yeah there are definitely others that that come to mind that you know definitely exist and have the look and feel that they have because of the shows that we talked about today Hope you enjoyed our episode on teen soaps. If you want to rate and subscribe and review us because you liked it so much, that would be much appreciated because it helps other people find this podcast. You can also catch up with us on Instagram. We're at the old millennials pod and you can find us individually on Twitter. I am at Margs Shiro and I'm at Emily A. Bijan. And until next time, bye. bye.